Gracious God and Father, we bless you. We thank you that even now as we stand in your presence, that you are the living God. That you hold all things together by the power of your word, even now. And that you are available and that you hear your people as we pray. And so our request this morning is this. Would you speak to us? Would you even invite that in your own heart? And I say, yes, God, would you speak to me? Would you pray for the person on your right, just silently, would you pray that God would be preparing their heart to receive from him this morning? Now to your left, would you pray for the person sitting on your left that God would just encourage and bless them through his word this morning? Would you please pray for me? for me as I handle God's word, that I would do so under the power of the Holy Spirit. Dear God, we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. We bless you for this gathering of believers. We pray all in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Those of you who have not had a chance to meet, my name is Jeremiah Morris. I am JT's younger brother, and uh, I'm in town for the holidays, and it's always a delight for me that when I get to drive in from Houston, Texas, we get to uh, spend the week with family, and usually it involves getting to open the scriptures with this community. So over the years, I've grown to love this church and get to hear all about it through JP and pray for you from a distance. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. The question that I'd like to pose and try to answer from the scriptures is this. Is joy really an option? Do you ever consider this? That joy is spoken of in the scriptures like it's actually an option, like we could choose it. That we actually have the capacity, situated in Jesus Christ this morning, to select, to choose joy, to live in joy. But the truth is, there's a lot of days for me where it just doesn't feel like an option. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Uh, and, and a somewhat simple and perhaps silly illustration. Houston right now is it's just burgeoning, which is really exciting time to be there. 10,000 people a month moving to Houston, which is, uh, means lots of energy, lots of excitement. It also means that if I leave my office at the wrong time, it takes me 35 minutes to drive approximately two miles home. And so it's on those days where when I'm sitting and it's 104 degrees outside in the middle of the summer and I've, I have sweat through my shirt, and I'm looking at the crowd of people thinking I'm never going to get home. Joy doesn't feel like an option in one of those moments, you know? I'm thinking, I, I don't know that joy is an option. But the truth is, that humidity and traffic are about this big, but the stuff we actually deal with in life at times, it feels heavy, where it feels like the temperature is being turned up in a real and emotional sense, in a relational sense. How is it that we as a people in those sorts of intersections can actually choose joy? Uh, the scriptures this morning are going to, to speak to that in the book of Philippians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it, Philippians chapter 4. And what we get in Philippians chapter 4, we're going to get this phrase as you've heard before, where Paul's going to say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Which another translation would be, choose joy. Choose joy always. I'm going to tell you again, choose joy. Uh, and I just want to situate us in this book, in this, in this letter of Philippians, what we've got is a community that's being oppressed. 
If we were to read Acts chapter 16, we would see that when the church was planted, it was planted in the midst of persecution, and that Paul is writing to them with the understanding that you're still situated in it. Some of you are being run out of your homes for your proclamation that Christ is Lord. And incidentally, he's writing to this oppressed people from chains. He's imprisoned in Rome. So a man in prison is writing to an oppressed people saying, hey, we have the option to choose to win. So whatever traffic jam we're in, right, whatever emotional weight we carry this morning, whatever it is that we feel like is really heavy and might be tempting to rob us of our joy, we're reading an author writing to a people who seems to believe that no matter what you are in, joy really is an option. And so I want to discover that path together. He's going to lay out, I believe, in, in Philippians 4, verse 4 through Philippians 4, 9, a, a journey to joy. He's going to show us how we can be a people that go on this journey to understand what this is. So, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, permit me to remind you of the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God fades forever. We would be really wise to pay attention this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This journey to joy, in many ways, is kind of like a remodel. Kind of like a remodel. The idea is that he's leading us into a place where we would be able to choose joy always, but in a sense, what Paul's going to do is he's going to start where we are currently situated. Just after talking about joy and living in joy at all times, he starts to talk about anxiety. And in a sense, you get this sense that he's talking about remodeling. If you were to think about a remodel job in a house, the first thing that has to be done is there has to be some things that are demolished, some things that are cleaned out. When Ashley and I bought our house a couple of years ago, we bought it from a builder that had purchased it, and it was on the verge of being a teardown. And he purchased it and gutted it, and we bought it at the point that it was gutted. And he showed us the pictures of the before. The ceilings were molded and drooping and coming in. Uh, the, the people who had lived there had been hoarders, and so it was just covered, uh, bottom to top with stuff. It was coming apart. It was, it, was, it was a filthy scene. And he had come and cleaned it out and stripped it all the way down, all the way to the studs, and was ready to begin remodeling. And the sense what Paul says is, Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. And then immediately he starts to talk about, okay, what's it going to take to start remodeling your, your mind and heart so that joy can actually dwell there in this world? And the first thing he says is let your requests be made known to God even as you let your reasonableness be made known to all people. There are three simple steps in this joy remodel. And the first is this, it's pray. It's pray. Something that you feel like, I probably didn't need to come to church for someone to tell me I have to pray. Right? That's expected. 
But what he's saying is he does this amazing thing right off the bat when he starts talking about this, this demo that has to take place if joy is going to root down in. I don't know if you caught this, but there's two phrases. Look back in the text with me and then mirror one another. In verse, four, in, in verse 5 it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And then at the end of verse 6 it says, and let your requests be made known to God. You see that? It's in the exact same structure in the original language. What he's saying is, let all of your requests be made known to God and let your reasonableness be made known to all people. What he's saying in essence is this. Right in the middle of that, he says, do not be anxious about anything. So the idea is that as our reasonableness is made known to all people, our requests are made known to God, anxiety is demolished. Follow me on uh, When we pray, when we really pray, what we're doing is we're laying hold of the stuff that has begun to, to rot the feelings. In our minds and hearts, we carry all sorts of anxieties and struggles that we, we begin to, to mull over, to sit in. These are the things that can oftentimes rob us of our joy. Anxiety is a joy robber. It's where we sit and pick at the same thing time and time again. What Paul says is, if we're going to go on this joy remodel, anxiety has no place in a heart and life. And the way that we begin to undo it is because you let all of your requests be made known to God so that your reasonableness can be known to people. The struggle is we often invert those. We often do the exact opposite. I don't know about you, but I actually feel validated by my struggles and my anxieties, my busyness, and the hard things I'm walking through in life. And so I let my requests be made known to all people and my reasonableness known to God. I'll come to God and I'll pray things like, Oh, heavenly, glorious Father thou art, would you be with me and thine that I love? Right? We, we, we pray in this reasonable language, dealing with God, but then we, when we meet with people, we say, you do not believe what I'm going through. I've got to tell you about my stuff, right? This thing happened to me, and this is hard, and we actually get in an anxiety battle. I'm going to try to outdo your anxieties and your struggles with mine. Oh, wow, that's, that's major. You've really been doing some stuff. But let me tell you what I've been dealing with, right? And I feel validated by my busyness, my stress, and my anxiety. I think you're going to think I'm important if I've done a lot of that. And as a result, I don't let my reasonableness be made known to people. I let my requests be made known to people. And then I'm left being very reasonable before God. Paul says anxiety will root down in your mind and heart as long as you're being reasonable before God. But this is the deal. What God is saying to us is, I want all of it. I want all of you before me, which means you don't have to be reasonable before me. I want you to pray real prayers about real stuff because I'm a real God. You can actually come and lay that stuff before me. You don't have to carry it anymore. And when we are the sorts of people that have prayer closets where we get on our knees and say, God, the weight of this is too much. I don't know how I'm going to carry this anymore, God. And we are able to speak openly and honestly, believing that he hears us. All of a sudden, you will become increasingly reasonable before people. Because you've already dealt with them. I've gone into the quiet and I've dealt with the Father who hears me. And now all of a sudden, I don't, I'm not looking for everyone to validate me or to carry my stuff anymore. There's a very big, powerful God that's already doing that. Incidentally, it says, make your request made known with thanksgiving. So it's not just a lament session. It's naming the fullness of it. And then finally, where in the midst of this God do I see you already at work so that I can bless you and say thank you? 
When I start down that road, all of a sudden my reasonableness starts to be displayed to people. I don't feel like a joy sucker or a life sucker that I'm not pulling life out of all the people around me because I'm trying to get them to deal with my anxiety. But I can start to breathe life and just speak life. Interestingly, do you see what happens when this, when this is the case? Look at verse 7. So on the back side of him saying, our reasonableness is known to people, our prayers are made known to God. Verse 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When I was in the 8th grade, I had a chance to go to London with my parents. And as an 8th grader, the very best thing about all of London are the guards and the funny hats in front of Buckingham Palace. Right? You know these guys? There's 44 of them that stand on the perimeter of Buckingham Palace. And those of you who've been there or have seen pictures, you know that these guys cannot be distracted for anything. Right? Big, tall, fuzzy hat buttoned into their thing, and they just stand there. And as an anchor, I thought if I wanted to make a blink, move, clap and do anything, and let these guys do it two hours at a time, they stand, and every 15 minutes they take 10 paces to the right and 10 paces to the left. Two hours of time, right? And then they just... All day long, 44 of them, 24 hours a day, surrounding Buckingham Palace. What the scriptures say is, this, this first step in the joy remodel of dealing with our anxiety comes when we go into that fire place and we say to the Father, I'm going to make every last request known to you. I'm going to speak it in this place. I'm going to deal with you with full confidence feedback to hear me. And you know what's happening in that prayer closet when that's going on? When you quit saying, I'm going to put it on, I'm going to quit putting it on everybody else. I'm going to come to the Father and I'm actually going to lay it before him. You know what's happening? The peace of God is getting up and he's buttoning into his suit. He's putting on his red fuzzy hat and he starts patrolling the mind of the believer. And he says, not on my watch. The peace of God begins, and it says, the word is an armed guard. The actual Greek word will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your heart and your mind has the peace of God walking as an armed guard on the perimeter when you begin to pray in this sort of way. With a real confidence that a real God is really listening, all of a sudden the peace of God begins to betray. You see, joy is not an option. If we embrace our anxiety and we let our prayer life go by the wayside, joy, joy robbers are ransacking the system. Anxiety becomes the story and joy is running for the hills. But when we begin to pray in this sort of way, saying, with gratitude, I'm going to make my request known to God, and I'm going to be reasonable before people. All of a sudden, there's space to breathe, and joy is starting to become an option, because no longer is a feeling falling. Anxiety is beginning to go. But that's not all. He doesn't finish there. If you were to finish there, it would be like the guy who had rehabbed our house, but when we bought it from the builder and it was down in the studs, he said, all right, I got all the mold gone, all the stuff's gone down and says, you guys enjoy, just move in and enjoy the house, right? Because the truth is, some of you, if I could parachute down into your brain and remove all of the anxiety, so that you had nothing to worry about anymore, every thought that had to do with anxiety or fear or worry was gone, you would think, well, what am I going to think about? What else do I have to do? What am I going to do all day if I can't be anxious? Right? Paul actually anticipates this. 
Did you see his next word? His next word in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What he has done is he has just brought the wrecking ball, the demolition wrecking ball of prayer through the anxiety of our minds and hearts. He's clearing out the old. And then he's leaving the people on this journey to joy going, well, well, now what is going to occupy the space of my mind and heart? And he says, how about these things? He gives us an eight-fold description of now that you've begun to remove the anxiety, not just sit in that place where you feel like joy is not an option. Now think on these things. And he gives us this eight-fold explanation of what it could be like. True and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and praiseworthy and excellent. Now, what does it mean to populate our minds, to, to, to redecorate, as it were, the in, internal life? This is the part that Ashley so loved in redoing our house, when you start to select the different materials, right? She got to pick the colors and the textures that were going to come together to create a home. And the idea is that in an internal level, what is it that's going to populate? What is it that's going to, to decorate your mind and heart and shape the way that you embrace life? Well, one simple reality when it comes to uh, this sort of thought that Paul's saying, think about these things, is that scripture memory is, is a very straightforward, easy application of this. Scripture will always meet the eightfold descriptor here, right? That he talks about things that are honorable and just and true and pure and lovely and commendable. The scripture is going to meet that entirely. Over the last few years, we've done a, a, a series of trainings for young people in the life of my church in Houston. So we take college students in the summers for 10 weeks and do intensive discipleship trainings. We take young adults over the course of a year, and they live in a home, and now we've got a couple of those homes where they live together and receive training. And then we do early morning classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So we've got people that are soaking in training for the purpose of ministry in their life. And one of the things that has happened is that a group of our young kind of college-age kids, 20 to 25, have been bit with the bug of Scripture memory. And so they've actually started memorizing the entire books of the Bible. Uh, I've got one guy, 22 years old, that just finished his sixth book of the New Testament. He has total recall on all of them. And so I've had to deal with the fact that you're just way smarter than me, right? Uh, but on, on one level, I just can't do what you can do, I don't think. But at the same time, I'm so inspired by this young guy. And so I texted them and asked them, hey, can you just give me like a one or two sentence summary on what the experience for you has been like of, of committing God's word to memory, of thinking on these things, as Paul said. Here's a few of the responses I got. I have understood the portions of scripture that I have memorized better than any other passage. I can and do daily hear the God of the universe speak his word to my thirsty and my rebellious soul. That's a 22-year-old male That's, uh, You don't believe in a God of miracles. <laughs> I don't know if you have any 22-year-old males, but that's one of those I go, okay. Wow. So this, during my life, I've memorized a few Bible verses here and there, but it wasn't until I did the whole book of James that I truly knew what it meant to have the Word of Christ dwelling in me richly. It is an amazing feeling to have the Word of Christ dwelling in me richly. And this, this is a quote from the guy that just finished this, this book. He says this, Committing to the discipline of memorizing scripture has for me absolutely proved 
to be an instrument against sin and temptation, a source of deepening daily fellowship with God, and a means of meditating on His Word in situations that would otherwise be impossible. You see, the journey to joy, as it were, requires a demolition. It requires in prayer, cleaning out the old. But the second is now thinking on a new set of realities. Rather than mulling over my struggles and my anxieties like I'm picking at a scab, right? It's something that's uncomfortable and painful, and I just sit in it, and I'm there. You say, now, begin to go something pure and lovely. Think about it. Work it over. It becomes like Psalm 1, the man that meditates on the Word of God, that mulls over it. It's like in Jeremiah where it says that, I've meditated on the Word of God, and as a result, my, my roots sink down between the waters, such that even in the dry season, even when things feel like they're falling apart at home, even when my child is rebellious and it's breaking my heart, even when my spouse said that thing to me again that just cuts me, even when work feels like it's just not going to pan out, we could, we could say even when a thousand different things, right? Even in those moments, we begin to soak in the truth of God. We begin to let the Word of God reshape what we believe about the world around us. And we begin to believe that perhaps there's the capacity to choose joy even when the circumstances say otherwise. One other note that's interesting about this is Paul lists out this eightfold explanation of what we ought to think. You know that all of these words, they're not used elsewhere in the New Testament except for two of them. Because what he's using is he's choosing the Greek moralistic terms. He's choosing the words from culture that are not spiritual words. So when he's saying, think on these things, it definitely applies to the scriptures, but he's not primarily talking about memorizing scripture. It applies, but that's not his direct application. What he's saying is, anything that's lovely or pure in culture, think about those things. Settle down on the things that are praiseworthy. There's a guy named uh, Alan Hirsch that says that the Christian should see the world with more brilliant colors and should taste food with more flavor than anybody else would have the Spirit of God. What he means is this, that when God is actually indwelling the system and moving through it, that all of a sudden the things in art and music and movies that are praiseworthy and beautiful and worthy, that that's actually the language he's referring to. He's saying now all of a sudden... It's almost like we've just seen everything ignite and technical. Because the Christian begins to realize that God's creativity is displayed all around me, and all of you beautiful people, and the things that you're putting your hands to throughout your week. And as I walk this world and read good literature and look at beautiful art, and say, dwell on the fact that you are experiencing God's creativity and beauty all around you. And so what, what he's doing is he's unfolding a world to us where we don't have to sit in our little home that's coming apart, where the ceiling is folding in. He's saying, with prayer, lay hold of that and clean it up. Pray and then think. Think differently. Think about things that are praiseworthy. And as you do, you begin down this journey to joy. You're going down the path towards joy. But that's still not the final thing. Pray, think. But what was the third thing there? Did you see it in the last verse, in verse 9? He says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, or do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Interestingly, he says, pray, think, do. It's, it's really simple. He says, pray, think, do. This is the journey to joy. And the last thing he says is, whatever you have learned or received or heard or seen in me, practice these things. First of all, what a bold statement, right? That's one in the margins of my Bible. I write, God, can I, can I disciple someone to such a place that I could say something similar? Could you do that? That I know there's going to be times where you don't recall the scriptures, you don't have it all stored away, but in that moment, just think about what you've seen me do and do that. Paul's confident in the journey that he's on and enjoying. He's calling us to live in that same kind of way. But interestingly, what he's doing in that list of four things, he's talking about both informal and formal discipleship. He says, you've learned and received some things from me, right? You've been taught things. Now, don't just be taught them. Go do them. And then secondly, what you've heard and seen in me. So he's talking about this idea that we are to be a people that, that hear and receive from the Lord. And once again, this is simple, but oftentimes it's the simple things where we go astray. Daily having rug time, where you put your nose in your rug, where you wake up early, you awaken the dawn, as the psalmist says, and you open the scriptures, and you actually believe that the God of the universe is going to speak. And in that moment where we encounter, where we hear and we receive from God, that we would become deaf men in yes women. Would you dare to pray that with me? Start telling God, I will be your yes man. <laughs> when I come across something that runs counter to where I am, I'm going to set the scripture aside, I'm going to pray for the Spirit's help, and I'm going to go do that thing. When he calls me towards generosity, I'm going to go and live in generosity. It won't come all at once, but I'm going to become practicing these things, as he says. Working at it to enjoy it, to experience it more fully. And so this is the idea that as we become yes men and women, we find ourselves in the flow of what the Spirit is doing in the world. So we actually begin to be folded into what he's already been doing. And you'll start to realize some of those things that were anxiety inducing <coughs> throw you to your prayer closet. The thing that you thought, certainly this isn't going to pan out. We begin to pray through that with gratitude, and then all of a sudden we're hearing from God, we're thinking on the things of God, and as we start to do them and implement them, we realize that he is reworking those sources of anxiety, that they're actually being redeemed right before us. And secondly, the sense of what you've, what you've heard and seen, and the idea is this, we need the gospel on each other's lips. I hear JP talking about gospel fluency and speaking it into our lives. The gospel on your lips is oftentimes much more believable than the gospel in my own head. Right? If the gospel on your lips is more believable, that as I sit with you and it has flesh on and you're speaking truth over me, as I see and hear things in the flesh in you, that all of a sudden I begin to be able to walk in obedience more fully. Let's see, what's the, fa- the final destination in this journey to joy? As we pray, think, and do you see that Paul has this beautiful kind of slight word shift on us here at the end. He's playing with the words to teach us something. And I want you to see this at the conclusion. He says this, practice these things. So pray, think, do. And he says, and the God of peace will be with you. Now who was it earlier that was patrolling our minds and hearts? You can talk, yeah, talk back to me. Who was it up in the earlier... And from the text, there's, there's, there's something that's embodied that actually begins to guard my heart and mind. 
the peace of God. Interesting. So as I come in, I begin to pray. Really pray and make my request known to God. All of a sudden, anxiety begins to be demolished, and the peace of God patrols the outer parts. The peace of God is walking the perimeter, right? And then it's almost like he creates the mental space that now I can actually begin to meditate on the word of God. So I pray and the peace of God shows up. And I begin to think on the things of God. And then as those things begin to settle down into me and become part of my DNA, I begin to walk it out. Pray, think, do. And what he's saying is on this journey, what we realize is that the peace of God is patrolling the outer portion. That's how the God of peace is right in the center of the camp. The peace of God has become the God of peace. Hear this. It's that the God of peace will be with you. The terminal point on the journey to joy, the final destination, is God with us. Did you see that? The, really, the, the journey we're going through in the midst of all of life's circumstances, this recognition that we're not alone, the God of peace is right there in the midst with you. We know this to be one of the very names of Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel. He is the full embodiment of joy. This is why in John 15 he says, If you abide in me and I abide in you, your joy will be full. It will be complete. He says that my joy will be in you and it will be overflowing. The idea is that in this passage, it's looking for 49. From the beginning, I don't know if you noticed, but it is an impossibility for us to do any part of this without Jesus. Because at the beginning, what does it say? Rejoice. In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. He's talking about in the Lord Jesus. And when the peace of God is patrolling our minds and hearts, what does it say? Look back with me. Let's make sure we're not missing this. He will guard your hearts and minds at the end of verse 7 in Christ Jesus. You see, God in his kindness meets us in the midst of our anxiety and says, you're not alone. That marriage struggle, that child that continues to frustrate the stuff of life that just feels heavy, like the feeling is coming in. I'm with you. And I will begin to guard the perimeters of your mind and heart so that peace can reign in. And I'm inviting you to think on me and to walk with me. And what will happen is that the God of peace, I will continue to be with you because I am the one who has, who has absorbed the hurt and the heartache and the brokenness of the world. I'm the only one ultimately that can obliterate anxiety, deliver peace, and bring joy. It's me. And so we see that the journey to joy is actually a journey right in the very presence of God Himself. As we become a people that are situated in Him, we all of a sudden, covered in the blood of Jesus, have the capacity to say, we don't have to keep doing it the same old way. We're going to be a people that pray, think, and do in response to Jesus. And as we do in response to His grace and kindness, we will find ourselves closer and closer to Him, which is the epicenter of all joy. You see, joy really is an option. Even when life circumstances are coming undone. Because we are never alone. There's no circumstance that is too heavy or where he has forgotten us or can't understand what we're walking through. And so when he says, in that moment, pray, think, do. I long for us. I long for my heart and my family, the culture that we're building in our home, to be a culture of joy. Not one of anxiety and frustration. I long for us to build a community that's built on that. And in this, it's a response to Jesus as we pray, think, do. Pray, think, do. Pray, think, do. As we walk that journey to joy, we will experience the very presence of Jesus in our hands. 
Amen. Amen.